Preparing for the ground theory component of an IPC can be a really daunting task sometimes, especially when you're not even using it every day and stuck flying VFR. To get into an IFR frame set takes a fair bit of work. Today, we're going to go through some of the common errors made and the areas lacking in theory and knowledge and how to apply that to scenario-based questions in your IPC. G'day everybody, thank you for joining me for another episode of Flight Training Australia. Before we get into things, firstly I'd just like to thank you all so much for your support and feedback and comments, uh, people touching base that I haven't heard from for ages and people I've never heard from at all. So thank you so much. It was uh, really great and uh, really excited to continue this process with you. So today we're going to have a look at IPC ground theory component. It's uh, difficult to keep up with at the best of times, but when you haven't been flying for a while, it can be quite a bit to manage and keep on top of, especially in this current time with uh, CASA producing a lot of new changes, regulation updates, uh, changes to simple lines in the AOP that can sometimes completely change the way we go about things. We've got part 91, 135, 122, all these changes coming up and depending on your phase of training and the level and uh, sophistication of the aircraft you're flying, being an OPC or an IPC, it can be a lot to keep on top of. So uh, let's have a look at some of the key points and hopefully it'll give you some guidance on where to, to focus your energies. So the first thing to do, if you haven't already, is to download the form 61-1512, 61-1512, and that's the Instrument Proficiency Check or IPC form. And it will take you to the Instrument Rating section in the CASR, 61M or 61.855, and that's the Instrument Rating Proficiency Check section. And this will take you through, well, actually, it's the instrument rating section. It'll take you all the knowledge components. The theory will either be in here, the CAOs, or the AIP, and your URSA uh, and DAPs or, or jet plates. All right, so have a look at the theory questions. And the first thing you really want to do is work through each one one by one and go to the particular source and reference everything you need to read and start taking some notes. Now, why would you do this? There's cheat sheets and other things available online, and there certainly are, and most of them are very, very good, although sometimes they're a little bit limited on context. And what I mean by that is the information that is in the cheat form is a kind of rote-learned regurgitation of information. Now, what you're going to find as a flight examiner is we are typically not going to ask you questions as what does it say in the AIP regarding this particular matter. What we're going to do is ask you a scenario-based question and that's going to get you then to apply the knowledge that you've read to that particular scenario. And what we'll generally find is this is done very, very poorly, which is interesting because this is the actual application of the knowledge to what you're doing every day when you go flying IFR. When do you need to conduct a missed approach? And you'll read out the, the items out of the, uh, the AIP that tells you when you need to do a missed approach except when I ask a scenario based on a misapproach concept, people find it difficult to actually come up with that conclusion of what they need to do. So it's really important to get the context of what's going on in the theory and how to apply it. 
And funnily enough, one of those first things is what is the actual privileges and limitations of the instrument rating and each endorsement that you hold. Now, again, I'm not going to go into a full theory session here, but I just want to direct your attention to some of the elements that we need to talk about. And one of them is the concept of flying under the IFR by day or night or under the night VFR. And that's basically the main privilege of the instrument rating. That's what it lets you do. Limitations are then all based on the other uh, approaches you hold, the uh, nav age you've been trained on, and the kind of aircraft that you're going to be flying and what operations. So have a look at the actual privileges and then think about the practicality of everything. IFR recency approach requirements. Now, this will depend on when you actually learn to fly uh, instrument flying. And if you've been in the Part 61 environment, then you should be fairly up to speed with most of this. But again, people get confused. And it usually comes down to definitions or interpretations of kinds of instrument approach. We have two main types. Instrument Approach Procedure 2D and 3D, IAP 2D and 3D. There are then subsets of that of either azimuth or CDI. This is the guidance or tracking guidance that we're going to get in order to complete the approach. If you conduct a VOR approach or a GNSS approach, this is a 2D CDI approach. If you do an NDB approach, then it's a 2D azimuth approach. How do you keep azimuth currency? You can fly a VOR approach if you have an aircraft, usually a, a glass cockpit style or an electric instrument, that will have a digital RMI underneath it. And the RMI will always point to the VOR station, and this is an azimuth indication. So you can actually use that with your CDI on top. Some complications that are coming up soon are the changes in Part 91 where you'll be able to have this GNSS substitute for ground-based nav aids without using the NDB or VOR. You can load it up in the GPS. You'll notice in the GPS at the moment when you try and load a VOR uh, or NDB approach, it will tell you not for IFR use, for guidance only. This will all change on December 2nd. And again, we'll get into all the Part 91 changes soon. But again, it's important to understand the different approach types. Another one that's different to this is the RNAV approach. People get very, very confused. Again, this confusion, I find, tends to come from their original training. Not to point fingers at instructors. I'm one, and we've all been there. And the whole PBN, GNSS, GPS side of things has been very confusing and difficult to keep in touch with. But there are certain changes that change the way we do things. So a GPS approach goes into approach mode at two miles to the final approach fix. When it actually transitions to this approach mode, can be spot on two miles, which you'll find if it does that, you're operating on a TSO 129 GPS unit. Or if it's a 145, 146 unit or better, you'll notice that it transitions into the applicable approach mode at the intermediate approach fix. What that means is you've got on a standard RNAV approach, a three-mile run to the point where it transitions from one mile in terminal mode down to point three. So we don't necessarily need to do rain checks. If we do a rain check via NAPES before we leave, that'll generally be the latest info, short of anything that's happened since you left the building. But it's not waiting to exactly two miles to see whether it is actually going to go into approach mode or not. 
in which case by then it's usually a bit late and you have to do a missed approach. So these changes uh, are things that you need to keep up with and what's going on. But then what sort of approach mode is it going to go into? Now we've got LNAV, LNAV plus V. What is LNAV plus V? Well, in short, LNAV plus V is a receiver-created glide path. Now I get told all the time, oh, it's not available in Australia or we're not allowed to use it. Well, of course you can. And I mentioned in the last episode, I directed you to the CASA briefing channel and the CNS ATM uh, playlist. And in there as well, they also mention that the VNAV, LNAV plus V is a bonus guidance glide slope. You are allowed to use it. It's basically a receiver-created glide slope where it's just plotted the linear points of the distance and the altitude so you won't have to maintain each mile's altitude check quite so stringently and makes life a little bit easier. It is still a 2D approach. You still come down to the applicable 2D minima. It doesn't make it an LNAV, VNAV, 3D approach. That requires extra training and demonstration of competency to an examiner. And again, we can get into that another time. So make sure you keep up to speed with the actual approach requirements. What if you're single pilot? What is that all about? Well, again, if you're single pilot, that's the hardest IFR flying you can do. If you're in a multi-crew scenario, you've got someone to uh, for checks and balances and, and to make sure that you're doing the right thing and pick up any errors. When you're by yourself, it's all you. So you need one hour in the last six months with one approach, and that's one hour planned IFR. Doesn't have to be one hour IF anymore. Right? You just have to lodge an IFR flight plan, and the flight has to go for at least one hour. You can't do uh, a bunch of 0.3 and 0.4 flights to build up a one hour total. It's got to be one flight of an hour duration or more. So that's your single pilot recency as well. So don't forget that. If you're doing approach recency in a simulator, make sure you check the approval of the uh, simulator that you're using. And most you will find that whilst you can use the simulator to do your three approaches in 90 days, you still may actually need to do one in flight. That is one of the conditions on the simulator approval. So just make sure you check that. Aircraft instrument requirements. Make sure you understand your IFR tolerances and limits and when checks and balances need to be made. What happens if the IFR is out of tolerance? Can I leave the departure aerodrome? Well, if I'm going to leave my main maintenance base, get to my first stop, and my altimeter is still out, I can no longer fly IFR. Seems like a pretty silly thing to do. So that check and that approval to continue to the second base is to get you home not really to leave your maintenance base. So again, think about it in a logical, practical way. Other questions you might come across are, everyone's usually pretty good at the mandatory instruments of the physical dials that need to be in front of them, but what about all the supporting equipment that keep those running, such as your static vents, pedo heat? Does a clock need to be fitted to the dash or can it just be on your wrist? Can you use your iPhone clock or your iPad clock? Interpreting operational meteorological information. Who knows what a TAF-3 is? Right? They haven't been around too long. Most people can usually tell me that a TAF-3 is a TTF. I said, well, no. If TAF-3 follows the foundations of what a TTF used to be, but it's not the whole TAF. It's only the first three hours, just like a TTF was, where no buffers and operating uh, 
probabilities are required to be held for. Sorry, don't need to be allowed for, still may need to hold. All right. Once you leave, the TAF3 will get updated. So you need to be checking that, and that may add or remove an operational limitation to you. But again, you need to just keep tabs on that and make sure you understand what it's all about. There's good information available on the Bureau of Meteorology website, and uh, you can look into that in more detail there. The other thing is just how to apply a TAF. Inters and tempos, there's a lot of confusion that if you see an inter or a tempo, people just say you need holding fuel. Remember, there's applicable alternate minima. For day VFR, which is probably what you're normally flying, it's 1,500 feet and 8,000 metres viz. IFR, we've got a special IFR alternate minima, which are at the bottom of the plate, aren't they? It's usually somewhere around 1,200 feet and... Uh, 4,400 metres thereabouts. Again, it's going to change from aerodrome to aerodrome, but that's more like what you're looking at. So if the inter and tempo weather isn't below those conditions, then you don't need to allow for it. Unless it says something like thunderstorms, in which case that's an automatic. You need to hold for that. All right. The next question is, do we need an alternate? How do I know if I need an alternate? It's not what's in the inter or the tempo. What's happening when the inter or tempo isn't actually active, i.e. an inter is periods up to 30 minutes? What's happening in the gap between that first uh, inter period and then the next inter, which could be 10 minutes away. It could be two hours away. All right. You need to go into the from line or the next plot line in the TAF whilst that weather's not occurring. If the conditions in that line are not below the alternate minima, then hey, you just need to hold. Of course, there's the buffer periods of bad weather becoming good. We assume worst case scenario, so we have to go an hour, half an hour extra. Or if it's bad, a good weather coming bad, we assume the bad weather comes half an hour early. So remember to apply those buffers as well. Takeoff minima. Pretty straightforward. It gives you 300 feet and 2,000 metres viz. But you need to take into account single engine operations in a twin engine aircraft. Now this answer is going to vary greatly depending on what kind of twin you're flying, where you're actually departing from, and whether you're a qualifying uh, turbine aircraft with auto feather, etc. Let's keep the base level that most people are going to be a non-qualifying aircraft. It depends on what the weather is at the time, what the cloud base is, your ability to return back to land or continue single engine to a nearby suitable airfield with weather that's not going to cause you trouble getting in. All right, so don't just say the basic answer of 300 feet and 2,000 metres viz. Have a real think about where am I and what you're doing because that's the answer that we're going to be looking for. And the way I ask this question is what is your takeoff minima out of this particular aerodrome in the aircraft that we're flying today. Because I want to know what your minima is. And what your minima will be will probably be different to my minima and the next person and the next person after that. Because the day's conditions are going to change, our individual experiences are going to change. When we're doing departure uh, and approach instrument procedures, there's certain multi-engine climb gradient requirements that need to be met on either a SID or just multi-engine, one-engine and operative considerations. 
right? Where can all this be found? 20.7.4. You need to know what the climb gradients are. There are times where you either need to maintain altitude at all levels up to 5,000 feet, or you need to be able to maintain a 1% climb gradient all the way up to 5,000 feet. How do we calculate 1% climb gradient to 5,000 feet? There's tables in front of the AIP, but there's simple formulas too, and it's typically just going to be your ground speed times the required climb gradient. So for a typical aeroplane of a blue line, 88 to 106 knots that you're going to do your IPC in, times that by the required climb gradient, 1%. So you need to be able to maintain 88 to 100-odd feet per minute all the way up to 5,000 feet. How do you work that out? Go to your climb tables. Go to 5,000 feet and work it out. And if you can do it at 5,000 feet, well, you'll be able to do it at all levels before. SIDS will typically have a 3.3% climb gradient. So again, 3.3 times your, your ground speed for your single engine blue line is going to give you a required climb gradient of around 300-odd feet per minute. If you can't maintain that, you're not going to be able to comply with the SID. Now, does that mean you can't fly the SID? No. It just means that if you do lose an engine, you need to let ATC know because your obstacle clearance separations are going to be threatened. They've got radar terrain. They'll be able to guide you and get you out of dodge. But, of course, remember that every time you go flying, you are responsible for ensuring your aircraft is operated within the required gradients. When can we operate below MSA or lower safe for night operations? What is the circling area? for a aircraft going into an aerodrome that is not served by an instrument approach. Hopefully you'll come up with three miles. That's centred on the aerodrome reference point versus a typical circling area for a Capri aircraft of 2.6 nautical miles, 2.66, off the runway thresholds. All right, Have a look at the differences between the two. And then what are the visual approach requirements if you're coming into an aerodrome at night? Think about what heights and what levels you're actually going to be brought into. I use an example coming into Darwin from the south. That If you're coming in at 3,000 feet for a five-mile final to descend onto the, the Pappy, which is one of the options available, you're going to be 1,300-odd feet too high at that point. It's not practical. So, again, thinking about what the AOP says you can do, but turning it into a practical a manoeuvre for your particular aerodrome and your particular environment and considerations. Circling approaches. Again, can you descend to 300 feet by day? Absolutely not. That is a minimum obstacle clearance altitude. It's not a minimum descent altitude. I can assure you there's a windsock at least that's about 12 foot high, so there's 312 feet. There's going to be trees, building obstacles. Not all obstacles are on the approach plate. So you need to ensure that you are fully aware of all things in your environment. You also need to think of a circling approach when you actually go to fly it as a visual manoeuvre, but it's a visual approach. It's not a low-level circuit in nice blue sky day conditions. We'll talk about this more in the next episode. But understand circling approaches is there a time where you can circle in no circling areas? What are the requirements? What's the maximum speed? If you're operating two engines in a decent twin like a 310 or a Baron, you could exceed 135 knots. 
Right? So know your cat B speeds and make sure you adhere to them because, again, if you go through the MOZ tolerances, it could be a fail item. IFR planning, I mentioned this in the first podcast as well. What does O2 or S1 or SGRVRZ, what does that all mean? What are you actually circling on your flight plan? Are you indicating what the chief pilot's just added to your aircraft list or are you adding what you are rated to do and your aircraft is capable of doing? What GPS do you have on board? What navigation tolerances is it working towards? If it's an old TSO 129 unit, then it's not going to be operating to the same standards as a 145 or 146 unit. Does that really matter? Well, yes, it does because you're indicating to air services or the the controllers what navigation tolerances you're able to comply with and they use that to base their separation of you with other aircraft. On the route, for example, for a 129 unit, you can be up to five miles full-scale deflection. So half-scale tolerance is two and a half miles off track versus a 145 or 146 unit of only one mile because it's two miles full-scale deflection. So make sure that you understand what it is you're circling and it's applicable to each aircraft that you're flying. Transponders, you're typically going to be using a mode S transponder with ID and ADS-B out. So this would indicate a E which is a mode S transponder with mode C capability, ADS-B. But because, again, there's a bunch of types of ADS-B, you need to say what sort. At default, it'll typically just be ADS-B out. So that's B1. If you've got some sort of traffic system in your aircraft, well, again, the second code will vary. It could be B2 if it's all integrated. If it's a separate unit, it'll be a different lettering code. All these codes and information should be available in the supplement in the back of your pilot operating handbook or AFM. So you need to have a look in there. If not, you need to talk to your maintenance uh, crew and they should be able to guide you in the right direction as to what RNAV PBN capabilities you have and your transponder capabilities and then you can match it to the applicable codes on your flight plan. Okay, so there's a heap of information there. As you can tell, I've whisked through that Uh, about 20 minutes and barely scratched the surface but hopefully I've given you some ideas on how best to study for your IPC and approach the questions in a scenario based manner if you've got any questions or ideas for future podcasts I'd love to hear from you Trent Robinson Aviation on Instagram and Facebook with underscores in between or email me info at Trent Robinson Aviation or one word dot com so that's it for today next episode we'll finish the ipc series and we'll get stuck into the common errors that are made on the flight component of the ipc flight test i'm sure if you've done an ipc before you'll be able to sympathize and identify some of these things you may have even done yourself if not stay tuned because it will definitely help you out Until next time, blue skies, and remember the golden rule, aviate, navigate, communicate. Cheers. Cheers.